Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, longtime Fidelity portfolio manager Jed Weiss is on the show to share his thoughts on international markets and what opportunities he's finding in today's current market environment. Jed speaks to host Brian Borskowski about many topics, beginning with how he got his start at Fidelity and why international markets appeal to him. Fifteen years ago, Jed launched what eventually became the International Growth Fund, with a Canadian version launching shortly afterwards. The fund targets companies with multi-year structural growth prospects, high barriers to entry and attractive valuations based on earnings forecasts. His fund is a concentrated one with only 75 companies, but he explains there are just not many companies that possess characteristics of multi-year structural growth, and the reality is most companies, when demand is terrible, are going to slash prices to keep factories moving. Jed is looking for companies that can maintain or even raise their price despite extremely adverse economic environments. Jed also touches upon where he sees growth opportunities in Japan, Africa, and other places globally. This podcast is recorded on February 16th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Jed, let's start off. Tell us a bit about yourself and maybe how you got into uh, stock picking and running funds for Fidelity. You know, I've been at Fidelity 25 years, but actually to really answer that question, I got to go back even further to my 10th birthday. The reason I mentioned that is on my 10th birthday, my parents, uh, in their great wisdom, gave me a single share of Warner Communications. Now, I don't know about you, but 10-year-old Jed was not excited about this gift. You know, I was looking for the latest game machine, which I think was like the Atari 2600. I was looking for G.I. Joe figures. I was not looking for a share of Warner Communications, but you know, not every birthday gifts a winner and life moves on and I moved on, except two and a half years later, Warner was bought by Time to become Time Warner and 12-year-old Jed realized that will buy me a lot of G.I. Joe figures. You know, that $50 theoretical gift had become $150, you know, and that, that would buy me a lot of G.I. Joe figures. So that got me interested in the stock market. You know, I ended up mowing a lot of lawns and shoveling a lot of snow and, and plowing it into my, uh, to my stock habit. I, I actually still keep the letter that my grandfather's financial advisor uh, sent to my dad saying, you know, I think it's great that Jed's interested in stocks at such a young age. I'd be happy to take him under my wing. So anyway, uh, when I got out of uh, Harvard undergrad in 97, I came to right to Fidelity. I started on the U.S. side covering uh, various various sectors, technology, financials, et cetera. Uh, and then I joined our emerging markets team uh, for three and a half years. And then about 15, 16 years ago, I launched what became the International Growth Fund and, and later launched as a Canadian version. Great. My parents got me uh, Maple Leaf Gardens when, when it was public. So I, I know that, but I didn't follow the, the quite the same path as you. So tell me about international. Why, why international? Why, why was that attractive to you? 
Yeah, well, first of all, on a, on a personal level, I, I first got interested in international because I was traveling a lot as a kid, and you know, I, I, I enjoyed traveling to these markets. And on a professional level, I realized, wow, the level of inefficiency in a lot of these equity markets is way higher than that of the U.S. counterparts. You know, I spent six and a half years focused on on U.S. equities, but to me, as an active stock manager, my life gets easier <laughs> when it when it comes to international. Plus, as we look at things today, international market, you know, it's been a tough stretch. You, you highlighted at your uh, intro that of late international markets have been doing well, and that's true. But it's been a tough stretch over the last 10 years for international markets relative to the U.S. counterparts. But the net result of that is international stocks look cheap almost any way you slice it. You know, whatever metric is your uh, choice of, is, of, of your choice, you know, P.E., price to book, even EBITDA, free cash flow yield, dividend yield, et cetera. And that doesn't mean they couldn't get cheaper. They absolutely could. But it's a better starting point than maybe we had uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago. And when you look at international, let's let maybe just talk about your universe, because a lot of people think sort of emerging markets. I mean, there's also Europe, and you, but you're covering all of it. So when you look at international, what does that mean to you? Yeah, fair. It's a, it's a broad-based fund. You know, the, the, the fund is benchmarked against IFA growth, which is a developed international benchmark. But it has the capacity to buy emerging market stocks or even in, it's, as long as they're internationally driven, uh, even some some stocks in North America. So it's, you're right. It's a broad it's a broad um, mandate, which for me is is awesome because, first of all, there's thousands and thousands of securities to choose from. So and, and Fidelity's research department is a real edge here. You know, we have on the ground presence in a lot of different countries with a huge research force that are that's able to turn over stones. And we've had that on the on the ground presence for decades which is very important when it comes for governmental and, and corporate relationships. So, yeah, I, I, but, but as far as what I look for specifically, my, my sweet spot for investment, multi-year structural growth, high barriers to entry businesses at attractive valuations based on my earnings forecasts. And, you know, there's a couple of key takeaways from that. You know, one, this is not a growth at any price fund. You know, valuation is a very important part of my process. And, and secondly, you know, I tend to run relatively concentrated funds with low turnover. And why is that? Because I am looking for these multi-year structural growth stories, high barriers to entry businesses, and those don't tend to change that often. And the final piece, you know, because that, that second uh, category I mentioned, the high barriers, sustainably high barrier to entry businesses, to me, one truth serum, not the only one, but one of them is pricing power in real terms at every point in the cycle. Meaning right now, people are very caught up in inflation and are companies able to pass through uh, cost inflation. That's important for sure. I'm looking for companies that can Get, they can pass through their price in real terms. But actually, in some ways, the truth serum to a company's real sustainable barrier to entry is what happens when demand is terrible. You know, are these companies able to maintain their price or in some cases even raise it even when demand's down 20, 30, 40 percent because there's been some global macro event like the financial crisis or because of a sector specific downturn? And the reason that's important is if demand's down 30 percent, even companies that can maintain their price, one thing they will do is cut their cost structure. And if you cut your cost structure, keep your price when volumes ultimately do come back, you'll benefit from higher cycle-to-cycle margins of returns. And yet in the short term, the stock market will probably punish you, you, you because you, you're missing near-term earnings, but losing sight of the fact that these are companies that can grow their cycle-on-cycle -cycle margins of returns. How would you characterize your style then? You said it's not growth at any price. Is it value? You're looking for undervalued companies. How would you kind of characterize yeah, your style. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to go into boxes. You know, it is called the International <laughs> Growth Fund. So I suppose, uh, well, and, and, and uh, you know, various uh, third parties would agree that it is a growth position fund, you know, if you right, pull up Morgan right. Star or what have you. But, but I, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm trying to provide that nuance because sometimes people equate growth with a valuation indifference or a, a extreme yeah. valuation flexibility. And that's not what I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for companies that look 
attractively valued on a cross on a three to five year cross cycle earnings basis, but are benefiting from a secular growth tailwind and do, and very importantly, have this long term durable competitive moat that enables them to benefit from pricing power in real terms at every point in the cycle. Let's talk about some of the themes that you're seeing. Are you seeing any interesting themes, opportunities right now? Yeah, lots of them. Uh, but one one that really stands out, but you know, uh, uh, that it has really come about in the last couple of years. The last few years has been a challenging time in the markets, a challenging time in our lives, and a challenging time for a lot of industries. But what's interesting to me is there's some subsectors that are emerging with a very different structure than they went in. You know, maybe they were badly affected by the COVID crisis. Um, there was massive consolidation. And then the cycle on cycle margins and returns of the business are going to look totally different. And yet the market doesn't quite appreciate that. And in some cases, they tend to be obscure things. So one company I went to see uh, last uh, last fall, actually, you know, it's in fabric cutting. They basically make automated fabric cutting machines and software uh, for, you know, the, the fabric cutting industry. You know, this would go into could be high end uh, clothing. It could be a furniture. It could be actually airbags, et cetera. Um, and what's interesting about this industry, admittedly obscure, is that there were two players that basically controlled 70 plus percent of the higher end of that market going into COVID. One of those players had a robust balance sheet with a lot of net cash. One of those players had a lot of debt, you know, and private equity basically had to sell it at the bottom of the cycle. So now you have one player emerging with uh, 70 percent of market share. And not only do they benefit from uh, the integration, you know, changes in distribution and changes in cost structure of the company they acquired, but they also benefit from a dramatically different competitive landscape than, uh, than when they went in. So again, no forward-looking statements on particular companies, but I do. I, it's that sort of thing that I'm looking for uh, where the industry structure has changed. You know, travel software is another one. It was a three-player market going in. You had one player with a, strong, a solid balance sheet, two players with high leverage, one player with very high leverage. You know, there's been a lot of, and, and so as a result, the player with a good balance sheet was able to invest in R&D, develop new products, go after new customers. The two other players had to massively reduce their cost structure, slashing R&D. And not surprisingly, there's been significant share shifts. But that's not yet obvious because although travel may have normalized in the U.S. and Canada, uh, travel has not normalized on a global basis, uh, either uh, intra, you know, inter-country or, or domestically uh, in a lot of places. And I think as it does, the market will come to realize these share shifts and the fact that the cycle-on-cycle margins and returns of these businesses, uh, or at least uh, one of those businesses, looks uh, notably different. So j- just a, one example of one theme, uh, but of course I can... <laughs> Give us another one. What's, what's another, another theme you're looking at? So uh, another one that I've been excited about for, for some time, but of course, cyclically looks more interesting today than it did, say, 12, 18 months ago, is extreme ultraviolet lithography. Now, that is uh, so EUV is a component of semiconductor capital equipment. It's actually the key gateway to Moore's law, you know, Moore's law, which is what enables, uh, you know, it's the shrinking of, of semiconductor line widths uh, over time. And it's what enables us to have faster, better, cheaper electronics uh, uh, over time. Uh, certainly better than the Atari 2600 I, I mentioned uh, <laughs> I mentioned earlier. But what's interesting about this is this is a technology that was very controversial for years and very hard to get working. You know, fit, I remember I'm an old semiconductor analyst from 20 plus years ago. Five seven years people didn't think it would work. And so what you had was a series of uh, you had basically a two or three player market where two of the players didn't invest and one of the players did. And now it's sort of a <laughs> Uh, a one-player market. And that's true not just for the maker of lithography machines, but also for various subcomponents, the, the entire the entire food chain. And meanwhile, now EUV, the EUV product cycle is big. 
And after that, there's, you know, what's called high NA, which is next gen EUV. And then there's another product after that, you know, and, and it's, um, and so it's a big product cycle with consolidated supplier base up and down the food chain. And yet, you know, whereas 12, 18 months ago, the semiconductor industry was on fire and people were talking about delays and, you know, we can't get our hands on any semiconductors. Now we're in a downturn. And so not surprisingly, the stocks are all down. So, you know, again, uh, no comments on particular companies, but just to say, I'd, I'd rather be looking at an industry uh, when when uh, stocks are down and, and uh, perception is negative than uh, when, you know, when it's when it's running red hot. I mean, those are, you said you, there's, you know, they were niche. I mean, those are pretty niche. So um, how do you look at multinationals? Um, how do you assess them? Are there opportunities or are you focused mostly on those local or regional or niche opportunities? You no, know, great, great question. And actually both is the answer. In fact, the, the two companies I mentioned actually do do export products. I mean, especially semiconductors is a very global business at this point. But there, there's, uh, you know, in, if you look at Europe, for example, and actually Japan too, there, there's a lot of, of very competitive multinationals that actually look in some ways much better than their U.S. counterparts, you know, that have had a longer term track record of success. You know, if you think of the luxury sector, um, you know, a lot of the big luxury names are all based in Europe, you know, uh, LVMH uh, being biggest of them all. And it's done a heck of a job over a, over a, a long period of time. Um, again, looking backwards, uh, not not uh, forwards in, in this case. Um, you know, a lot of Japanese industrials have, have done, an, a lot of Japanese exporters have done a great job of exporting to the Chinese market, stealing a lot of the share in the U.S. market. So there, there's absolutely uh, multinationals that I think have done a great, a bang up job uh, internationally. But then again, there are domestic niche businesses. You know, I mentioned Japan. The Japan small mid-cap market, some of this is export, but some of this is domestic, is an incredibly inefficient market in my in my, in my my mind. Not to say all Japanese small mid-cap stocks are buys, they're not, but it's a wonderful fishing pond. I think basically because the Japanese market underperformed for 20, 30 years, starting in 1990, and, and a lot fewer people are looking at it than they were 20 years ago. And the net result is you get kind of quirky situations. I remember last year, the biggest residential paint company in, in Japan with over 50% market share was trading it. It never lost money, always generated consistent cash, was trading at less than the, uh, it was trading a negative enterprise value, meaning the value of cash on the balance sheet was in excess of the value of the stock market capitalization. That's just a kind of a quirky situation you don't see in a lot of countries. So it's, uh, you know, of course, not every name's like that, but, uh, and, and that name is no longer like that, but, but I'm, uh, it's a great fishing pond to look for. How does the country aspect fit into this? Clearly, you're bottoms up, but you know you're saying you're finding different opportunities in Japan. So uh, France is your second largest kind of geographic holding. Um, so how does the country aspect fit into your process? For sure, and and this kind of leads into portfolio construction. You know, for me, it's very important that underlying stock picking is what's driving the fund's performance, but not macro exposures. And, and that's an easy statement to make, but actually surprisingly hard one to make happen. So I work carefully with our quant group. I also build a lot of spreadsheets myself, keeping track of risk. But economic risk may not necessarily translate into country of domicile or sector of domicile uh, risk. So uh, for sure, I consider countries, you know, I, I also get in country. I was in, I was in Europe a couple months ago. I'm going to Japan uh, literally next week. Uh, you know, with uh, with our team, we're going and, to. And so the country dynamics for sure matter. But often and actually some of the companies we just talked about, um, the key economic driver is not where the company's based. So LVMH, yes, they have a French business, but it's very much a global business. Or and that's true for a lot of the luxury luxury companies. Some of these EUV semiconductor companies, same thing. They, you know, they maybe happen to be based in, you know, uh, the Netherlands or Japan, depending on what company we're talking about. But that's. 
Japan is not necessarily the key driver for their business. So I'm really focused on where, you know, what are the key economic drivers as opposed to country of domicile, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it does. But although saying that, I'm going to ask a question about a specific country, if you don't mind. Canada, I noticed you have 3%, which is interesting. And just the MSCI, you know, our world index uh, has Canada 3% and you're kind of have also have it at 3%. So I'm just wondering where are you seeing opportunities in Canada? Why, why do you have that allocation to, to our country? Fair enough. And, and I think it's, uh, it's important to mirror that positioning with, you know, Australia. Uh, which has a number of interesting, a number of interesting similarities. You know, both in terms of uh, consolidated banking system that are a big portion of the index. You have a lot of energy and material stocks. So does Australia. You know, the currencies are highly correlated. One notable difference, though, is actually the Canadian valuations tend to be much cheaper than those in Australia. And actually, I think there's a, a longer, more attractive tale of of uh, you know mid capy type of dynamics in Australia. And there's certain industries that are more present in, in Canada, more present in Canada. So one long time, you know, holding holding of the fund as of the last publicly disclosed data would be the Canadian rails, for example, you know, very consolidated market, uh, some interesting M&A uh, happening there. You know, Australia doesn't have a comparable uh, situation. Actually, the U.S. Is, is less consolidated than Canada. And, you know, those have those have, you know, have had a secular tailwind. They've had good pricing power over time. And then it's a question of what do you pay for them? So, again, no, no forward looking uh, view. But, you know, if you look historically, that that's an area where the where the fund has been exposed. So like anything, you got to peel the onion beyond the country level and look at look at the underlying stock. But but I do think when you look at the fund's Canadian exposure, one needs to keep in mind that, you know, the fund is underweight Australia. And I'm finding better opportunities in Canada today than I am in uh, in Australia. You clearly have, you know, a process and an approach that you take. Yet uh, there are seventy-five companies in your funds, is and you have a whole universe of, uh, of companies to choose from. Much more than that. So, is, are, are you? Why? I guess why are you concentrated? Is it hard to find companies that fit your style? You know, Brian, I wish there were more businesses that had the kind of pricing that had those characteristics: multi-year structural growth, high barriers to entry, attractive valuations. And the reality is, the way I define it, you know, these high sustainable moats. Are hard to come by. There's, you know, most businesses when demand's terrible, for example, you know, they're going to slash price to keep the factories moving, and that's fine. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for companies that can maintain or even raise their price despite extremely adverse economic environments, and they're just not that uh, that many of them. Having a broad universe like I do helps me a lot, you know, in finding those ideas. And of course, you know, yes, you're right in pointing out I own around 75 names, but there's also Quite a few names that I don't own, but are on my hit list for, you know, when do we get to the appropriate valuation? And, you know, sometimes it never happens. But, you know, if we look in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of craziness. You know, a lot of crazy macro shocks have happened. Um, and that, in some, you know, of course, as a citizen of the world, I hope none of them ever happen again. But it, it has been an opportunity to pick up a great franchise business on the cheap. You know, not necessarily focused on the epicenter of whatever the crisis might be, but finding a great franchise business that, is out just because people want of want out of the UK because of Brexit, or they want out of Japan in the aftermath of the Fukushima earthquake, or they want out of Europe because there's you know continental war going on, and these are all scary headlines. But when I read scary headlines, and I do read the paper with my three kids every morning, uh, you know there's lots of scary headlines. When I read those though, what I'm looking for is from a, a work standpoint is where are the market dislocations associated with those with those scary headlines and. Often there are quite a few. How much turnover do you have in your fund? And, and I guess when you are turning over, what is your sell discipline? How do you know when to sell? 
I'd say over time, and it does vary a bit, between 15 and 25% turnover. So pretty low, I'd, I'd say, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Of course, when markets are very volatile, you might see that creep up somewhat, but it's always in the kind of uh, f- fairly fairly low levels. Again, why is that? I am looking for these multi-year structural growth stories, high barriers to entry, and those don't tend to change very often. But I, but I am you know, trying to capitalize on some of the aggressive uh, stock movements that, that, uh, that we have. Um, so that, that's a general piece of turnover. As far as my sell discipline, in some ways, it's the inverse of or the converse of my, my buy discipline. You know, multi-year structural growth, high barriers to entry, attractive valuations. My favorite kind of turnover is when the stock's working and it's getting more expensive. And typically, I'll be trimming on the way up because stocks don't tend to gap up by 3x absent an acquisition. You know? So I'll, I'll just be, uh, be trimming on the way up. Where I'm likely to be more aggressive is if I start to see that that sustainable competitive moat is deteriorating from new competition or new regulation or whatever it might be, because my valuation framework is predicated on, you know, cross-cycle three to five-year uh, earnings forecasts. And that's predicated on the company's pricing power at every point in the cycle. So as soon as I start to question that pricing power and that competitive moat, then the valuation framework kind of deteriorates and I'm more likely to be a more aggressive uh, seller. There's actually some questions about whether you focus more on emerging markets or developed markets, if you see growth opportunities in Africa or some of the more emerging markets. So, so maybe talk about kind of, yeah, the difference between kind of EM and, and developed and how you approach those. Absolutely. So remember, I, I gave my, my history at the beginning, but I did spend three and a half years just focused on the emerging market fund before picking up this fund. You know, so that was back in early 04 to early 07. So it's certainly uh, an area where I feel comfortable. I feel I have experience and have, have been, uh, you know, Backward looking, been successful. The from a but if you look at the fund today, the you know the benchmark as I mentioned is a developed market benchmark. But that's not to say I can't invest in EM. I have invested in EM. I consistently have. Um, but it's a small. It's a relatively small piece of the of the uh, of the total fund. At least EM is defined by MSCI. Now, of course, some of these uh, multinationals I'm referencing in Japan and Europe will have uh, economic exposure to to emerging markets. But what I like about this approach is I can be opportunistic. You know, when I see a, a particularly attractive EM stock, you know, I, I, I go in there and grab it. If I had an entirely EM benchmark or a dedicated EM benchmark, you sort of are naturally drawn to owning, you might be potentially drawn, drawn to stocks that were uh, uh, somewhat less, less attractive. As far as the Africa question in particular, um, yes, I, I do own a couple stocks in Africa. And actually, it's, a, it's the last 12 to 8, 15 months a number of those uh, markets have been under pressure. So it's actually an area I've been spending more time in. You know, the South African market, back when I was on the emerging markets team 20 years ago almost, uh, was a very cheap market. And then it rallied a lot, but it's given back a lot of that uh, valuation premium in the last five, 10 years. And actually now there's a, we're once back, we're once again back to an interesting fishing pond where I'm spending more time. It's not just South Africa, you know, Kenya um, has, has, you know, there's a, uh, long time holding as of the last publicly disclosed data, um, uh, Safaricom, which is an interesting telecom, but also a payments company. Uh, there's some interesting names in Egypt. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking broadly. It, it's certainly part of what I do. It's just not the dominant piece of what I do. Okay. So, I mean, globally, when you look at the economy and interest rates and inflation, it's going up in, in all over the place, but in way different kind of numbers and, and, and everybody and each of these countries has their own economies and their own pressures. So how do you take in kind of the macro environments into your process? For sure. You know, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate in that Fidelity has a fantastic 
macro macroeconomic research team that does a lot of work on the macro. Plus, of course, we have our emerging market bond team, you know, who does a lot of uh, specific work on emerging markets. So there's a lot of resources at, at our disposal. And of course, I'm, I'm also traveling in country. Often I'm meeting some of the macro officials or regulatory officials, uh, et cetera. So it is cer certainly something I'm looking at. But getting back to my earlier point, I'm not necessarily trying to make bets on country like, oh, I, you know, I think the new BOJ head is going to raise rates uh, and thus, you know, the yen's going up uh, and thus I want to buy a domestic Japanese retailer. Well, that may all be true, but like, actually, I want to make sure that I never come in front of you or any other audience and say, you know, gee whiz, I'm sorry, the fund underperformed. I was sure the yen was going up, but in fact, it went down or oil was going down and went up. You know, so I'm, I'm sensitive that underlying stock picking be the key driver of the fund. Doesn't mean I won't have macro opinions. It doesn't mean I won't have net exposures, but I want to have carefully controlled exposures as part of the portfolio construction uh, process. So uh, from a stock specific level, of course, the macro environment matters as well. The, you know, when, the, when there's a big change in government, you, you know, that, that can change how the, the regulatory climate that, uh, and the, the certainty of the legal system uh, that, I'm, that I'm accustomed to investing in. So that, that matters a lot, but I tend not to make top down. I'm, I'm bullish on Europe, so I want to own X. It's more, uh, you know, the best macro observations in some ways are amalgamation of micro observations. Like it's more, oh, it's interesting. I found myself as the market's gone down, buying more sort of pro-cyclical names and selling more defensive names. Like that's an interesting observation. So what about currency? I mean, you're uh, shopping all over the world. How do you handle all of these different currencies? Yeah, so another great question. I am very focused on currency, but again, within the context of portfolio construction. And what's interesting about currency is it depends on what you own. So if you own a Japanese domestic retailer, for example, and the yen goes up, you benefit from translation because you own the security in yen, but you also benefit from transaction because your revenues are going up, but your costs are going down because you're probably importing, you know, the, your, your cotton from China or somewhere else um, that's dollar or euro denominated. On the other hand, if you own an exporter and the yen goes up, you benefit from translation, but you get hurt from transaction because your your uh, your costs are, your your revenues are going uh, are going down relative to your to your cost structure. So I pay attention not just to where the stock is domiciled, but what are the implications for that company with a currency move? Because again, I want to make sure that my macro exposure to the currency is is uh, is well understood as part of the the construction process. Okay, so uh, we're, we just got about a minute, a couple minutes left here, and and I have to ask. Why should people invest in your fund? You could get an emerging market fund. You could get a European fund. Uh, you know, you can you can construct these in different ways. Why your international growth fund? I personally think a broad-based fund like the one I'm I'm happy. You know, I'm, I'm one that I'm very fortunate to own uh, gives the best opportunity for finding the very best stocks, irrespective of where they're um, domiciled. You know, and, and uh, as I mentioned with my history, I've I've focused on different sectors or different geographies over time. But my ultimate career goal was to manage as broad a fund as possible, precisely because I have a specific investment process that can be applied to as broad, a, you know, broad a category of stocks as as uh, as possible. And I think there's uh, wonderful inefficiency out there, but where that inefficiency most lies depends. You know, I, I mentioned, hey, Japan small mid cap seems like an uh, inefficient anomaly. I remember 20 years ago, emerging markets. You know, when I was working on that fund, that was an unusual inefficient anomaly. But five, 10 years later. Not so much because everyone was excited about emerging markets. So where I'm excited about will vary over time, depending on where you know where the stock picking opportunities are. And the broader the mandate you have, uh, the better off you are. But I can say one thing that does not vary is the investment process. You know, the investment process I just outlined is exactly the same one 
that you would have heard from me when the fund launched, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Multi-year structural growth, high barriers to entry, attractive valuation. You know, I've been disciplined to that process and it's a patient investment approach. That's great. Any any last comments, anything else that, uh, you know, you want to, you're seeing out in the market that we should let everyone know before I let you go? <laughs> um, the only point I'd, I'd, uh, I'd make aside from, you know, what I just mentioned, which is what you can expect from me is sort of discipline and patience is, you know, empirically, uh, the, as the market has come down in the past 12, 18 months, I have gotten a little bit more, you know, when I see down markets, I get a little bit more excited. I'm finding that is exactly how I'm finding great franchise businesses on, on the cheap. And so as my wife will attest, I've been uh, I've been more excited in recent months as, as, uh, as the markets have come down as, as a way of finding up opportunities. That's great. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for this. And uh, looking forward to chatting again at some point in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks for the great questions and uh, for everyone's interest. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.